Good evening, everybody. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. I trust you've had a good day. I myself have had a good day. Can't complain. My voice is not doing as well as I had hoped, but it is good enough to go, for, to go uh, on with class tonight. So, Thank God for that. We're in Colossians 4. By the grace of God, we're going to finish this chapter and therefore this book tonight. And we will have a Colossians exam, so please, in case I, it, in case it slips my mind, somebody remind me to give you the notes for that. This test will be due by next Wednesday. You'll need to, um, you'll be able to find it on Google Drive, and then you'll need to email the answers to uh, Janae via the church email address. All right, Colossians chapter 4, and before I give you the simple outline for it, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this evening in the name of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being fed once again from this bread of life, this true bread. I pray that you might speak to us, feed us, nourish us, build us up with what we read. Lord, no matter how deep or how practical, whether it's hard or easy, Lord, please let it change us tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to break this chapter into two parts. And uh, it's a very, I believe, a simple outline, very simple chapter. Paul is wrapping up a lot of things and, and offering some salutations and saying farewell and hello and things like that. So, the book breaks, I think, into two parts. Number one, prayer and proper conduct. That'll be verses one to five. Prayer and proper conduct. He is going to focus on, on witnessing and preaching the gospel, but there are, there's enough information in those first five verses. I believe prayer and proper conduct encapsulates it. And then part two, Paul's fellow laborers. Paul's fellow laborers. Uh, verses six to 18. All right, so let's get into chapter 4 and verse 1. And we read here, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now, as you might recall from uh, church history and manuscript evidence class, I think I've mentioned it in both places, the Bible was not broken up into chapters until the 1200s, and then the verse numbering that we currently have, it came around in the 1500s, around about there. So that, that is when we see chapter 4, verse 1, that's more of a way that it's worked out. There is something fascinating about how the numbers seem to line up in all sorts of ways. I bring that up simply to say, if I were dividing this, I would have put this verse at the end of chapter 3, right? Because we have various groups mentioned, wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, and then masters. It would have flowed nicely, I think, but the fact that it's in the next chapter doesn't make it any less true. Uh, masters. We talked last week about how slavery back in biblical times was different. It certainly had its challenges. I'm not saying that all of it was good, but uh, it is what it, it was what it was, let's put it that way. And the exhortation here, whether you're dealing in that historical context or in a more modern sense, you would think of a boss, the manager, the owner of a, of a business. 
Give unto your employees, your servants, that which is just and equal. Pay them properly. Now, the world all over struggles with this, right? Think of sweatshops and people that barely make enough money to feed their families and pay their rent, and yet they're working harder than a lot of people that sit in offices and just um, live off of everybody's labor. I I wish there was some sort of system, right? Wouldn't it be nice if there was some governmental program that you could implement that would create a fair and equal system in the workplace so that people would get paid according to their labor, not according to who they know, not according to the color of their skin, not according to their gender, right? The idea of a woman making less than a man, if they're doing the same job, then they should be paid the same, right? Fair, equal, just and equal. Now, if they're not doing the same job, right, they might have the same job description, but if they're not putting out the same amount of uh, output, the same, same amount of work, then the pay should be adjusted, whether that's, in a lot of cases, the woman would probably make more than the man. Uh, and the same goes for any person of color, right? And that's not just an African thing. That's all over the world like that. In America, you find it uh, a lot with the Mexican folk. They get they, they come into the country illegally and people pay them under the table and they barely make anything. I'll tell you how to fix this, this whole pay scale and making sure things are fair and equal. People need to get saved, develop a relationship with God, and then they will have a sense of what it means to have a good master. And our master, right, as he says at the end of the verse, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the way that Jesus treats us, the way that he rewards us for our labor, that becomes a template for how a master or a boss, a manager, should treat the people under his authority. So I think that's really the only place we're going to find any definite answers to that problem is for people to fall in line with the God that is revealed in the Bible. All right, verse number two, continue in prayer. Now that by itself is a very powerful statement, continue in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, a verse I think everybody has memorized, pray without ceasing. After I first got saved, I thought that meant that if you're not praying 24 hours of the day, every minute of every hour, you're sinning, you're falling short. Obviously, I was young, I was very new to the Bible, I hadn't read the Bible, but I saw that verse and I thought, man, who could possibly live up to that? Pray without ceasing is another way of saying Verse 2, continue in prayer. Be consistent about it. So many times our prayer lives are on and off. Now, please don't don't get the idea that I'm trying to uh, force you into a certain schedule. I've had preachers say things like this, and I must admit, in, in my younger days as a believer, it did affect me. I found myself under what I would now call false conviction on many occasions, People would try to set a standard and say, you should pray at least an hour a day. And then the next person would say, why not two hours? And then everybody has their own like time, I want to say limit, you know, the standard. You have to be in the prayer closet for this long in order for it to be effective. That's not true. I, I like the idea of having a plan for prayer. I, I think you should plan it into your day. But I also recognize that not every day is the same. 
just as a husband and wife, right? You're in a very loving relationship. You should communicate often. But not every day is going to require the same conversation. It's not going to require such an intense conversation. So things are going to fluctuate a little bit. But you should consistently be communing with that one you love. The same thing with, with God. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Now this word watch, you remember Jesus used this out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, which is a fantastic comment about prayer, right? We know that we should do it. Our spirit loves to do it, loves to commune with God, but boy, the flesh, something about prayer, the flesh just despises and hates it. When we pray, we should not only go through the motions and saying the right words and honoring God with our lips, but we should watch. That is, pay attention, be vigilant, in the prayer closet. Not, not only pay attention to what you're saying and try to let those words that are coming from your mouth sink in. Mean what you say, but watch what's going on around you. Take the circumstances of life and bring them into the prayer closet and discuss them with the Lord. Take the, I want to say the, the position of society, just the way society's working and Bring it into the prayer closet and say, God, this is what's going on. And I need wisdom. I need guidance. I need help. And then he's also careful to say, watch in the same with thanksgiving. Another temptation to prayer is to step in and just make requests. And I have found myself, maybe you have also found it this way. We step in, we begin making requests, and it can quickly turn to complaints. God, I need this. God, I need this. I need help. Oh, God, this is going wrong. This is going wrong. So-and-so, this, so-and-so, that. All these problems, all these disasters. And if you're not careful, the heart starts to get a bit hard to say, man, everything is just rotten. You, you want to make sure you take some time also to think about all the blessings, to think about the unnumbered times that God has showed kindness, even this day, right? That song we sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. So rather than stepping in and just throwing out a blanket, thank you, God, for all of our blessings, which I get it. On occasion, that's, what you, that's all that the time allows. But there should be times where you go out of your way to think about what God has done and thank Him individually for all those blessings. Watch in the same with thanksgiving. And now Paul's going to add a prayer request. With all, praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. So this is another way of saying, pray that God gives us a chance to speak. And then he says, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. The mystery of Christ, uh, if you want to just turn a couple pages back, look at Ephesians chapter 6. Let me show you another way to say mystery of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So you know what's going on in their lives and you're praying about it. Verse 19. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel equals 
the mystery of Christ. Those are synonyms. Those are category headings under which falls the seven individual mysteries, right? So you, you think about the body of Christ, the indwelling Christ. You think about the deity of Christ. All of those things fall under the heading of the gospel or the mystery of Christ. They, these are things that were revealed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, revealed through it and after it as a result of it. Right. Uh, let's read one more verse, Ephesians 6, verse 20, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So even though he's in prison and arrested, he's still saying, guys, pray that God gives me a chance to tell somebody else about Christ. Now, I have caught a little bit of... Uh, a negative response. I've received a negative response from some for the emphasis that, that I've always tried to place on evangelism. Now, not everybody's against it, but some people have actually left the church over that. Why is it always about winning souls? I, I recognize that there's more to the Christian life than just preaching the gospel, but I do believe that there is a very heavy emphasis on telling others about Christ regardless of your circumstance. Paul is in a difficult way. As he's writing to the Colossians, I'm going to show you later how this letter was, it had to have been one of the last epistles that he wrote, close to the end. And yet he's still praying, guys, ask God to open a door for me to utter the gospel and, and pray that I can do it boldly. I don't want to hold back just to make my circumstance more comfortable. Come back to Colossians 4. So he says, pray for me, and I may speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. He got arrested as a result of what he'd been preaching. He'd been preaching that Jews and Gentiles were all one in Christ, and that uh, nobody needed to become Jewish in order to become more spiritual. That's what got him arrested. Verse 4, that I may make it manifest, make it known, as I ought to speak. So you see how Ephesians 6 adds to this, or I should say supplements this very nicely. It explains it. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. With, without what? O outside of the body of Christ, outside of the church, which those are one and the same, when, we, when we're speaking of spiritual things, right? The body of Christ is a spiritual entity, which is, that is the universal church. But you can also think of it as people that are outside of the local church. I think that's also true. In 1 Corinthians 5, you'll see the wording, I believe, allows for that. When Paul talks about those that are without, they are outside of the, the church, both universal and local. But either way, we, we pray and ask God, give us wisdom as we approach those people that are without God, without hope, without Christ, they're outside of the body of Christ. We don't just walk to them and start pounding them with the gospel. We go to them in wisdom, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And then Paul says, redeeming the time. We, there's not a second to waste or to lose. There's not an opportunity that we need to let slip by us. People, wouldn't you... Have, wouldn't it have been great for you? I'm speaking to most of you. Some of you maybe knew the Lord from a young age, and you need to thank God for that. 
I really wish I would have knew Jesus Christ personally before the age of 20. Man, age, what, 13 up to... Tw- if, if I could go back and change that part of my life, oh, wonderful. I, I'm not saying that this... I don't think this indicates we all just quit our jobs and quit everything we're doing. We all just go into the ministry and focus on evangelism and that's it. I, that, obviously, that's, that can't be the case. But redeeming the time, making the most of the opportunities you get, taking advantage of, of every minute and every open door. Verse 6, let your speech be always with grace. We would say always but that's the old English way to say it. Let your speech be always with grace. Right? What does it mean to speak with grace? That's actually a broad statement. I think there's a couple ways we can understand it, and I think both things are, are equally true. To speak graciously, that is, don't be rude. Um, don't, don't come across as a jerk. Don't, Don't just stand up and start railing on people. Don't rebuke them from, I want to say, out of a place of anger, just to prove that they're wrong and you're right. See, that would be the opposite of speaking graciously. So to speak graciously, you speak with some kindness about you. You're not being a rude jerk. I think think that's true, right? I think that's true. However, I think you can also understand it like this. Let your speech be always with grace. You need the hand of God upon you as you speak. Now, this is true of any conversation we're having, whether it's talking about the rugby or we're talking about Christ. We should allow God to, um, I want to say, give us the right words, but to at least, our speech shouldn't be displeasing to Him, right? I, I don't think you need to pray about what you say when you talk about the rugby, but... You don't want to get into that conversation and start using foul language or something like that, right? So even in those situations, you still need to have some grace. You still need to remember that God is listening. But in the context, we're dealing with telling other people the gospel. So I think that's immediately what Paul's aiming at. As we try to explain the gospel and the Bible to those around us, we need more than just kind words. I'm all for being nice. Right? I'm not against that. But that's not enough to get the job done, just being a nice guy. When you have the grace of God, right? Jesus, He was full of grace and truth. He spoke as one that had authority, not as the scribes. He didn't tiptoe through the tulips. Right? He, when He preached, He let it go. And He had the power of God behind Him as He was saying it. The Spirit of God, He had it. It was in abundance, overflowing in Him. So as we speak, we need that same power from God, that same unction, right? So let your speech be always with grace. And then the next statement, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. Interesting statement. Paul doesn't elaborate on that. There's no other cross-reference in any of Paul's writings that I can turn to that will help me know exactly what he meant by that. So forgive me, I'm just going to have to give you my best educated guess as to what he's getting at. Seasoned with salt. When when you put salt on something, it adds flavor. It makes it more interesting. I'm sure there are a number of you listening tonight 
you have sat in churches. I, I hope this is not true of our church, but you've sat in churches before where the duomeni or the pastor or the, the, the reverend, whatever, you call, whatever he calls himself, gets up to speak and man, it is so boring. You just conk out. He needs to put some salt on that. He might, what he's saying might be true and it might be right. But it's difficult to listen to. It's, it's difficult to palate, right? Because it's just so bland and straightforward. You need to say something that will bring the truth out and illustrate it well. So when, you, when your speech is seasoned with salt, you offer a truth, but then you offer some evidence. You offer an anecdote. You offer an illustration. You paint a picture with your words. You, you take the truth and you adorn it. it. The Bible actually uses that phrase in a couple places to adorn the doctrine of God, to make it beautiful. So I'm all for just explaining it, but then say something that will relate, that the crowd can relate to and go, okay, yeah, that, 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 that illustration, that story we're familiar with, oh, okay, that links into, that's how we would apply it. And it helps people receive the message if it's more palatable. Uh, let me show you a few verses on this subject. Come to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Now, this is profitable for all of you listening tonight. Men, ladies, it, it, it doesn't matter. If you're a preacher, if you're not a preacher, it doesn't matter. We're all going to find ourselves having an opportunity to talk to somebody else about spiritual things. You, you need to know what we're about to cover. However, some of you, I believe the Lord will one day call you into a full-time ministry. Or at the very least, you might still work a, a full-time job, but you'll be preaching on a consistent basis or maybe teaching a Sunday school class or helping a, a, me or some other pastor somewhere. You, you really need to, to focus on what we're about to cover. Isaiah 50, verse number 4. I have prayed this many times. It says here, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. That, that verse is rich for any man that wants to be a preacher. Oh, that verse has a lot in it. Pray that God gives you the tongue of the learned. God, show me what to say. How do you get the tongue of the learned? Look at the end of the verse. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. So I, I listen to others teach it. I read the books and then I get familiar with the words so that when I go to explain it to somebody else, I can pull this story from a history book. I can pull this poem from that book. I can, I can pull this verse from this other part of the Bible and paint the picture clearly and beautifully so that the people understand it nice and clear. Uh, pray that God tells you what to say in that season, right? For, for that time, whatever the people are struggling with, whatever that person is going through, God, what do I say now? Don't get stuck thinking, well, I've, I've explained it this way, you know, a hundred times and it's worked. Well, things, 
the, the truth is still the truth, but you might need to update your illustrations. I found that to be true with how I illustrate the gospel. You can use what's going on in the world to, to illustrate the gospel, especially this coronavirus, right? People are worried about dying, but then the obvious thing to say is, what about sin? It's been killing people for millennia. Why aren't we worried about that? Uh, come back to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. So you need to have salty speech, seasoned with salt. Now, salt is a tricky thing. I've done a moderate amount of cooking in my life. You put too much, you kill a dish. You don't put enough, you kill a dish. It, it, needs, to be, it needs to be done in a balanced way. There's a, there's a necessity for balance with salt. Now, salt is not sugar. Right? We don't need a bunch of sugar daddies up in the pulpit. We, we, don't need, we don't need preachers that will rot our teeth, giving us these, these candy floss sermons. We don't need that. We do need something with a little bite to it. That's what salt will do, but, but it needs to be balanced. Look at the balance here. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. That's... Clear enough. That guy is saying something completely asinine. It's illogical. It's stupid. There is no good answer to it. And if you get involved in that conversation, you're going to end up tripping over that same illogical point. It's not even worth trying to straighten it out. Leave it alone. It's already clear to everyone around that what that guy's saying is nonsense. So don't get involved. That's your first option. Answer him not. And look at verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, if that guy's said something, and in his mind, boy, it makes perfect sense. And maybe there's some other people around also saying, oh, wow, okay, I hadn't thought of that. But you see the fault in it. You know there's something wrong. Again, you don't, you don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be rude. But you probably should speak up and, and clear up that confusion that he is creating. And speak that word of truth in due season. So you can see why you would need to pray and say, God, give me the right thing to say at the right time. Uh, come back to Colossians now. So th there's a lot more we could say about this. This is not a lesson on how to preach, but uh, there's certainly something you could take from that. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. In every situation, you need to have, you need to be able to speak patiently, kindly, boldly, right? In the passage, Paul's asked for, for boldness. Remember, we read that in uh, Ephesians 6. So you, sh you can speak with kindness and with boldness at the same time and season it with salt. What other stories, what other Verses, what other explanations are necessary? And if you couple this with 1 Peter 3, verse 15, wonderful verse, we, we should sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. So there's an element of meekness when we speak. That is, I'm not trying to 
bolster my reputation and prove I'm right and you're wrong. That's the wrong attitude. But I am going to stand for the truth. I'm not going to let somebody just say whatever they want about God and the Bible. I, I want to make sure that people are hearing what's right. Verse 7. Let's, let's keep moving here. Verse 7. By the way, the code for tonight, Proverbs 26, verse 4. That's the attendance code. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Verse 7. All my state, my temporary condition, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, Tychicus, he... Um, he features in a, a few of the epistles. If you look at the end of Colossians, there should be a subscript right at the bottom. Uh, I'm going to show you now. Under the verse, there's verse 18. Just underneath it, you have some smaller words. That's called a subscript. And the subscript, now it's not a verse of Scripture, but it is in the ancient documents that, that we still have access to. It's a little scribal note written from Rome to the Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. We'll talk more about him in just a moment. So Paul had this big fancy word, amanuensis. Now the plural of that, whew, I don't know if I even want to try it. I won't have the tongue of the learned if I try to say, is it amanuensi, amanuensises? I'm not sure. But anyway, amanuensis is like a secretary, somebody that you're dictating to and they write it down. So these men did the writing. Uh, Tychicus, he also was going to deliver a message. Uh, he says, all my state Tychicus shall declare unto you. So this man's going to come to Colossae and tell the people everything that's going on with Paul. How's his health? Uh, is there any chance he's going to get out of prison? Any of that kind of stuff. Give them all the, the details that they might need. And Paul has some very kind things to say. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Imagine if Paul put you in a letter and described you in such a way. I, I don't need him to say fantastic preacher or amazing teacher. I, to say faithful and fellow servant, beloved, that's high praise. Uh, might that be true of you? Right? Might, we, we, we should be able to say that about each other. Right? Regardless of how God has gifted us or whatever talents we have, whatever opportunities we have, we can all do these things. We can be faithful and we can be servants. Verse 8, Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, we would say, and vice versa. So Tychicus is going to tell the Colossians about Paul, and then he's also going to tell Paul about the Colossians. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. So by delivering this message to the Colossians, He's going to comfort them. Say, listen, Paul is concerned about you. Paul's asking about you. Just by delivering that message, to say Paul wants to know the state of things here. How's it going? Just asking made them feel better. It would comfort them. Uh, I've seen so many people do it. People have written me on a number of occasions. Hey, preacher, praying for you. How's your voice? Um, how's lockdown? Just checking in. Guys, that... that it may not seem like much, but it really does mean something. It does make a difference. Verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He was a Colossian. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Now, Onesimus, if you take your Bible, come 
to the book of Philemon, right before Hebrews. And the epistle written to Philemon, Philemon is just an individual in the church at Colossae. And this isn't a lesson on Philemon, but you should know that Onesimus was, from best we can tell, he was either a thief that ran away or a slave that ran away. Either way, he had, he had a connection to Philemon. And Onesimus had ended up getting arrested, and he, it was in prison that he met Paul. Paul led Onesimus to Christ in prison. But now it's time for Onesimus to get out of prison. And Paul writes this letter back to Philemon and says, Listen, take him, take him back in. I know he's done you wrong. Put that on my account. This guy, he's, he's, he's a brother now in Christ. Uh, so you're going to see several names in the book of Philemon that also appear in Colossians chapter 4 because it is the same area, it's the same church. So this Onesimus, Colossians 4 verse 9, in Philemon 1 verse 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. I led him to Christ while I was in prison, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. So there was some sort of relationship there, probably master to slave. And then Onesimus had, had run off. But whatever the case might have been, now, by the time Paul writes the book of Colossians, Onesimus is worthy of the phrase faithful and beloved brother. So he's not just a guy that's freshly saved. So that, that shows me that Philemon was written first and then Colossians had to have come second. Now while you have Philemon, let me just show you the, the names quickly. Uh, verse 2, verse 2, to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Archippus, we'll see him later in Colossians. Uh, Philemon, come on down to verse number 23. There salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. So by the time Paul was in prison and writing this epistle, those men were still with him. Now you're going to see those names pop up again. Come back to Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. So just saying, saying hi, saying hello. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. Uh, we already, well, I say already, last year we studied this in the book of Acts, chapter 12 and verse 12. So if you want to make a cross-reference, if you haven't already, it explains the family dynamic there and how Barnabas is actually related to, to the man we know as Mark. The Bible calls him Marcus or John Mark. He's also known as that. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Now here's what's interesting about the mention of Mark. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. But you might remember, we don't know what happened, Mark turned back. He didn't finish the journey. And because of that, Paul wasn't willing to take Mark on the journey after that. Barnabas was willing to give him a second chance, but Paul wouldn't do it. And Paul and Barnabas, the dissension was so strong that they had to split up. They couldn't work together anymore. So Paul and Silas teamed up, and Barnabas and Mark went, went about the work. Later on, though, as time went on, Mark earned Paul's trust and his respect. 
I think there's a fantastic lesson there. If you have made some mistake and you blew it, you weren't faithful, that doesn't mean God can't use you. Furthermore, maybe someone has done you wrong and you have written them off in your mind and you think that's it, they had their chance. If, let me say it this way, give them a chance to win your respect back. I realize that may be a, it may be challenging, it depends on what they did, but at least give them that chance to get back under your good graces. Verse 11, and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision. So he was uh, Jewish just by heritage. Now, Jesus was this man's given name, right, from, from birth, which is called justice. I'm sure you can understand why they would give this man a, a bainom, a nickname. It, it might have become a little bit awkward, right, to use that name, especially in that day and age. We still name people Joshua today, but in English, most people see Joshua and Jesus as two separate things, two separate names, and they are spelled differently. But we know the etymology of that word, it goes back to actually the same, it's, it's one, one and the same name. Uh, Jesus, so this, this man he shares the same name as our Savior, they're going to call him something else just to eliminate any confusion. But listen, it's not wrong. If somebody names their child Jesus, it's not wrong. It may be strange based on your culture, but there are some cultures where it's perfectly okay. This is going to sound strange, but I've actually led Jesus to Christ. <laughs> uh, about, I don't know, four or five months after I got saved, I was out witnessing in, in uh, Texas where, where we were. And I met this Mexican guy, talked to him for a while, and he ended up bowing his head right there in the, on the, in the street where we were talking, and he gave his heart to Christ. And afterwards, I was taking down his details. I wanted to invite him to church and follow up with him. And, and I said, what, what, what's your name, sir? And he said, my name is Jesus. And I thought, man, I, you know, at the time, that really tickled me. I said, this is incredible. I just led Jesus to Jesus. This is just amazing. But... In, in that culture, to name your child Jesus is not uh, blasphemous or, or anything. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a way of honoring God, actually, in their mind. And verse 11, Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Now, I wouldn't take verse 11 to mean the, the people that Paul just mentioned, that's it. There's no one else outside of this list who, who has ever helped Paul, who's ever comforted him or been a blessing to him. I, I believe he's referring to his current situation, where he's at right now. Those are the men that are there helping him and being a comfort to him. Now, verse 12, we're going to talk about this man, Epaphras. And uh, you saw his name in Philemon. But here we get some more information about him. We already met him briefly in chapter 1, verse 7. You might remember that he was very involved in the Colossian church, the church at Colossae. And it appears that he was from Colossae, as you can see in this verse. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. So Epaphras, he was with Paul, most likely in Rome, where Paul's arrested. But he is Colossian. 
And he says, Epaphras says hello. Now, now this next part, I, I've preached sermons just from this. This man has a tremendous prayer life. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And then specifically, what Epaphras prayed about the most was this, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That, that links back to what we looked at in chapter 1. We want to stand before the Lord, not just stand in heaven, there I am, but stand there holy, unblameable, unreprovable. And we only do that by continuing in the faith, grounded, right, settled in the faith. We want to stand there complete, having fulfilled all the will of God. Epaphras is praying towards that end. But notice, always. Right? He continues in prayer. It's, he's faithful about it. Laboring. He puts a lot of effort into praying. Fervently. There is passion. Right? It's not just... I would, I would say crucifying the flesh and going into the prayer closet, putting in the time, that, that would be laboring. But the fervency... Right? That's where the man gets in there and his heart breaks. And usually when, when you have a man like this who's soft-hearted, you squeeze the heart, the juice comes out of the eyes. Right? The, the tears come down. Always laboring fervently, not for himself. Not, not that it's wrong to pray for yourself, but you should spend some time praying for others. And he did. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So I won't, I'm not going to re-preach my sermons on that, but it's, uh, it's certainly a standard worth aiming for in your prayer closet. Verse 13, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you. Well, I'm sure that there's more to the story than just Epaphras praying for them. I'm sure he did other things that would have helped the Colossian church. But all we have in the passage is his prayer life. So if all we had, if all we knew about you was the way you prayed, then what would we conclude from that? Paul bears this guy record just based on his prayer life. Listening to him pray, he can tell this guy really loves those church members there in Colossae. Man, he has a burden for them. Does God know that you have a burden for missions? Could we... Recognize that from your prayer closet? Does God know just how much your family means to you? Could we, could we deduce that from how you pray for them? Your job, your function in the ministry, in the church, any aspect of life, if we really want to know how much it means to you, I wonder if we could look in your prayer closet and then deduce from that, yep, he has a great zeal, or maybe we would say a lack thereof. I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Now, Laodicea, we read about that church in Revelation chapter 3. And we know, I, I don't know how that church started. We, don't, we have no history for it. But by the time you get to 95-ish AD and John is writing, you know, Jesus has John writing to that church, the church of the Laodiceans was in a, in a bad shape. They had become very worldly. They were lukewarm. They said, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, very close in proximity. If you, I'll, I'll let you look on the map um, 
going out of Turkey and towards Greece. It, you'll see it kind of on the edge of the edge of the land there. Uh, but uh, Epaphras, he had a great burden for that area in general, which leads me to think that Epaphras probably did the job of a circuit-riding preacher, which was a very popular thing in the days of the First and Second Great Awakening in America. This is the 1700s, early 1800s. Preachers would travel from city to city, sometimes state to state, on horse, horse and buggy, uh, or just horseback sometimes, and just constantly visit these churches in a circuit fashion. I'm thinking Epaphras probably did something similar to that. In verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, Luke is the same Lucas from uh, Philemon, and it's the same man who wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. This man was the beloved physician. So he's, he's beloved in that he's in the body of Christ. He's saved. He's in good fellowship and good standing with the church. But uh, his job description is a physician. So this He's, he's obviously a well-educated man, well-to-do. Even in those days, physicians were paid uh, fairly well. And Paul needed a physician, right? With all the wounds and the bruises and the bones that had been broken, he'd been stoned uh, you know, and put to death once, actually, through that. He'd been whipped, 195 lashes. He needed a doctor. And uh, God provided one all the way to the end. Luke, Luke was with him. You'll see that in 2 Timothy. You'll see where Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, only Luke is with me. He's the last one to, to remain with Paul. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, this is the same Demas, right? In Philemon, he's called a fellow servant. This Demas, when you get to 2 Timothy 4, it says, Demas hath forsaken me, hath forsaken me having loved this present world. Well, knowing the area, I, 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 wonder, I wonder if Demas maybe got hooked up in that Laodicean church, right? I wonder if he felt, I have need of nothing. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was about the world that called Demas back into it. But here, Demas is um, he's, he's part of Paul's fellow servants. He's beloved in the book of Philemon, but by the very end, 2 Timothy... He was gone. Verse 15, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. So Laodicea is the area, Nymphus is the man, and the church which is in his house. This doesn't mean he was the pastor. It could have been, but he, this is at least, at the least, he's the man who opened his home and allowed the Christians to come in and hold their church services in there. Now, I, I understand when people... When they hear this, they think, well, this is a home church. It was. It was a church in a man's home. Uh, but it's not the same as what you see going on today with cell groups. Right? That's, and, and I'm not going to get into explaining the difference and what's right and wrong about that situation because it's not all bad, uh, the idea of cell groups. But the idea of having a church in your home was a very popular thing because people didn't have money for church buildings. Furthermore, Christianity wasn't legal in most areas. Uh, so the only way you could do it was by gathering in a person's home, and who knows? We might have to employ some very biblical tactics in the near future. 
uh, verse 16, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul had written to the Colossians. He says, you guys, when you're done with this, uh, you can either copy it or, or take this, this original copy and make sure the Laodiceans get to look at it as well. They were obviously very close in proximity. They're dealing with the same problems, need to hear the same information. But then Paul had evidently written the Laodiceans, and now same thing needs to happen in reverse, share that epistle with them. I'm assuming that most of the information is going to be very much the same, but just look at both documents and, and maybe you can learn an extra thing or two. Now, this epistle to the Laodiceans, we no longer have. There have been many attempts at forgeries, but all of these documents that bear the name Epistle to the Laodiceans by Paul, right? They, it, it, something about those documents, and there's always, there's always a different story behind every one of them. It always turns out that it couldn't have been Paul. There's never been a Greek manuscript that's come to surface, uh, that's come to the surface, that was that would indicate anything remotely linked to the Apostle Paul. The only documents we have that talk about the epistle to the Laodiceans are in Latin, and they come from the 500s. The Latin Vulgate actually did include this, uh, the epistle to the Laodiceans, and John Wycliffe, when he translated from Latin into English, he actually put it in his in the, the very first English Bible there ever was. He had that epistle, but as people studied it, they, they realized that's that should it's not part of the canon. Uh, there is no Greek evidence linking it back to the apostolic age, and there's no good reason to think that that epistle was was legitimate. Now, there's no reason to think that this is a problem by any means because. And, and this is where, if, you ha if you've already taken our manuscript evidence class, I think this will really help illustrate what we talked about in class. When these men sat down to write what we now call the books of the Bible, was that man inspired? Well, I'm going to just to get the semantics right. I'm going to say that man was led by God. He was moved by the Holy Ghost. I believe, I believe we can say that. But that in and of itself is not the same as inspiration. You can say that God inspired the man to write, but, right, and, and if you want to use that phrase, use that term, what you're saying is God is moving him. But that's different than saying the, the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible are inspired. So in, in both these cases, here's what you have. You would say the man was led by God. The man was inspired. Okay. The fundamentalists will say because he was inspired, what he wrote is also inspired, and it is now Bible. The problem with that is what about Paul when he wrote to the Laodiceans? Was he not inspired? Was he not led of God to write what he wrote? Did he write something false? And if, he, if, if an inspired apostle is writing something then that should be included in the Bible. And since we've lost it, does that mean we've lost part of the Bible? So you see where that, that thinking that if this man is inspired, therefore whatever he writes has to be inspired eternal scripture, you're going to run into problems because we don't have this epistle to the Laodiceans. On the other hand, if you say this man, now he was led by God, he was inspired and in that God told him to write, 
But then the man wrote, as any man would. Then after he wrote, God breathed into the words and he actually inspired the words, not just the author, but the words. Now see, this means that Paul could write to the Laodiceans and God would look at it and say, perfectly fine, but I don't want to preserve that as part of the scripture from this day uh, and forever. So God didn't breathe into that so that it would one day be collected as the whole that we now call the Bible. So I, I, again, I don't want to go back into manuscript evidence class and re-explain all that, but this is an excellent um, opportunity coming across a verse like this. The fact that we no longer have access to what Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, all we can assume there is God gave us everything we need and what we do have. He preserved all that is necessary. Right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, perfect unto all good works. God gave us exactly what we need so that we can get everything done. So, for whatever reason, that's between God and Paul, I guess, as to why this wasn't included in any sort of a canon. All right, verse 17, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Now this man Archippus, we don't know exactly what his role was. It kind of sounds like he is the pastor. right? I would say Nymphus is the owner of the house and Archippus is maybe the pastor of the church at this time. Whether that's the case or not, he had some role in the ministry and Paul's charge to him is stay faithful. Stick with it. Don't quit. Do everything that God wants you to do. As that's, that is some great advice. You don't have to reach you know, a thousand subscribers on YouTube. You don't have to become famous. You don't have to evangelize uh, in stadiums with 40,000, 50,000. If God lets you do that, praise the Lord. But one of the greatest things you'll ever achieve is to be able to get to the end of your life and say, I have done that which thou gavest me to do. I, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. I didn't quit. I stuck with it. He said, Archippus, you have a privilege to be in the ministry. Now, stick with it. Be faithful. In verse 18, we finish the letters, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Now, it, it looks as if Paul probably wrote verse 18. What we know is verse 18. That was with his own hand. This is what he would always do. We've talked about this in some other epistles as well. Uh, he would sign off on the letter. So Tychicus and Onesimus, they were responsible most likely for writing the epistle through, via dictation, right? Paul was telling them what to write. But then when you get to the end of it, Paul would sign it with his own hand and put a line or two there just to verify and prove this this statement has been approved by the Apostle Paul, and on it would go. Uh, if that tagline was missing, then that church at Colossae, Laodicea, Herapolis, wherever it was, they would look at that probably in doubt and go, wait a minute, because we know that there were forgeries. People were writing letters in Paul's name and causing confusion, so they always looked for that tagline. Okay, that's as far as we're going to get. That's as far as we can go. So I hope that you've learned something from the book of Colossians. hope you can 
do something with it. I want to give you quickly the questions for your Colossians exam, and you'll need to write this by next Wednesday. You can do it tonight if you'd like, but by next Wednesday. And we do have class next Wednesday. Uh, Garrett, if everything works out, Brother Garrett will be teaching you the book of Ephesians. Him and I are going to work on the technology behind all of this and make sure that uh, he is up and running. But if everything goes according to plan, he will be teaching you on Wednesday. I will still teach you on Tuesday for the book of Matthew and then, of course, on Sunday night as well. All right, Colossians exam. Number one, give three things for which Paul was praying that would happen in the Colossians' lives. There's several things in chapter one that he listed. You just need to give me three. Number two, according to Colossians 1, verse 18, Jesus is supposed to have what in all things? Now, you just need to read the verse. You'll see what that thing is. Number three, in order to appear at the judgment seat of Christ, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, in what must one continue? I believe you'll find that in chapter 1, verse 23. Number four, what is the mystery to which Paul referred in Colossians 1, verse 27. Now remember, there are seven different mysteries that fall under the heading of mystery of Christ or mystery of the gospel. Paul referred to one of those in Colossians 1, 27. Tell me what that, what that was. Number five, what type of circumcision is mentioned in Colossians 2, 11? Number six, what was nailed to the cross along with Jesus? Now, guys, I'm not asking you to go back into the book of Luke and find what was physically hanging on the cross according to Colossians 2.14, right? What was nailed to the cross with Jesus? Number seven, give three characteristics about the old man that you are supposed to put off. Again, long list, choose three. Number eight, this is much like this, uh, the previous one. Give three characteristics about the new man that you're supposed to put on. Several choices you choose. Number nine, how can a believer earn the reward of the inheritance? This will be at the end of chapter three. Number 10, what two things did Paul suggest be included in our speech? We spent time on it tonight, chapter four, verse six. He said, let it always be with this, seasoned with that, those two things. Number 11, what three things did Paul use to describe Epaphras' prayer life? Well, I paused for a moment in that verse and emphasized three things. Uh, he had three, let's call them adverbs, I believe, would be the right word. Number 12, which church was closely related to the Colossian church? We just finished talking about how two churches were supposed to trade epistles. And then you have two memory verses chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 23. Okay, uh, I am going to restart this actually because I fear that there might be a question or a comment I need to deal with. So I'm just going to restart this, take just a second, and then as I come back on, we'll pray and we'll be finished for the evening. So give me one moment here. Okay, that is what I thought. That is what I thought. There's several. Give me just a second here.
I do have a question here. Daniel L., shame on you. You should know better than that. What is angel's food? Psalm 78, verse 25. Corn from heaven. Psalm 78, verse 25. All right. Uh, it says here, man did eat angel's food. He sent them meat to the full. Uh, if you look in the verse before it, and rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven. So the manna that was falling down to the ground for the Israelites to eat, um, evidently, that is what the angels eat every day. Now, I'm very limited on the dietary code for angels, but just from what I can see there, that's... That's what angels' food is. It's, it was the manna. They would partake of the same substance. Now, I, I admit, though, the possibility exists that by the time it left heaven and came to the earth, that some, something had happened to it uh, and had changed, but that's, that's as much information as I have on that. Okay, uh, let's pray, and we'll uh, finish our evening with that, and then I look forward to Oh, I keep wanting to say see you guys again. I really do look forward to that, but I look forward to our next lesson. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege to be together. And I pray that you'd uh, help us to take these things that we've learned and use them. God, we want to use them. I pray you'd help us to be fervent, always laboring fervently in our prayer closets for these things that you've laid on our hearts, these important matters. And we pray for an open door God, to tell other people about your son, pray especially for Leon. Keep him healthy, keep him safe, keep him on the road. Thank you for providing so generously, Lord, through our church and through his efforts and reaching so many people. Please, God, even during this difficult time, give us a chance to tell somebody about the lovely Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.